Well, uh, this is kind of a big week for some of our students. If you have uh, high school kids in your home, this is exam week, and they're kind of wrapping things up. And so I just want to know, let you guys know that we're thinking of you, we're praying for you, uh, that you would finish well this week. I know exams can be a stressful time for students and in the households of students, so we're just praying for you guys and praying that you would start next semester well. I'm just going to jump right in with a question starting this off uh, this morning. And the question is this, have you ever started a new job? or been given a new task, and you quickly realize that you just were not prepared or qualified to do it. You know, maybe you felt that you didn't receive adequate training or preparation, or that this new thing was just simply something that you were not ready for. This past week, my daughters, uh, they had a special dress-up as your favorite book character day for school, And, uh, you know, since Courtney works in Milton, she's out the door before we are. And so that means daddy gets to help with the morning routine in our house. And, you know, we have a system. It works when we follow it (laughs) until we don't. And so, you know, we were prepared for that day. We had the costumes laid out the night before. And then in the morning, my oldest informed me that her character had curly hair. And so I was going to be able to curl her hair. And so she guided me down the hallway with curling iron in hand to the bathroom where we stood in front of the mirror for 15 minutes and I gave it my best shot. But after 15 minutes, we both looked in the mirror, we both looked at each other and we realized this was not going to happen, at least not to the extent that she was hoping for. But in my defense, I had not been adequately trained. I had not been adequately prepared for this job. You know, it took me long enough as a dad to just learn how to do a ponytail, let alone, and then even a braid, Um, but this curling hair was beyond my level of training. And so she still went to school, she wore her costume, she just didn't have curly hair. But I wonder about you. Have you ever been given a new job? Have you ever been given a new task that you realized very quickly that you just were not prepared to do? Maybe you thought it was easy. Maybe you saw other people do it and you thought you could do it yourself, but when you started to do it, you realized that you couldn't. You know, for those of you who are parents, you probably can think of many examples when you thought your kids were ready for something, a new responsibility, but when you came back to check on them, you quickly realized that they were not and they needed more instruction and experience. And so the question I want you to talk with each other about this morning with, uh, just turn to the person beside you. The question is this, have you ever been given a job or a new task that you realize that you were not prepared to do? Go ahead and talk with each other about that now. So that, that generated a good buzz in the room, I guess, is maybe some other people who are there with me. That's uh, encouraging for me. You know, some other dads in the room, maybe we can uh, find each other after. You can join me in my hair-challenging misery. We can start a support group for one another. That would be great. 
Well, this morning we are going to be continuing our series on the book of Exodus, and uh, we're going to actually pick up the story of Moses where he has finally agreed to take up the task and go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh and to save God's people. But it's along the way where he realizes that he is not ready to uh, commit to the calling that God has on his life because there's a sin issue that needs to be dealt with. And so we're going to see this morning how Moses has actually compromised his call because he's failed to acknowledge what holiness requires. Holiness requires faithfulness. Let's pray before we enter in this morning. Father God, thank you again that we have the privilege of gathering together. We have the privilege of worshiping you through song, through your word, through just the fellowship of your body. And so, Father, in these next moments, would you open our minds that we would be able to understand the depths of your truth. Father, would you give us the ability through your Holy Spirit to discern the things that we need to hear today. And God, would those things not just remain in our minds, would you move them into our bodies that we would live out the faith that you have called us to. God, I want to pray that you would put us in a posture this morning of receptivity to your Holy Spirit. Put us in a posture. And God, whatever is in this space that is stopping or blocking or distracting us from hearing from you, in the name of Jesus, we pray that you would remove that, whatever that is. Father, if that is something in our minds, if something outside of us, or Father, maybe even myself, we just want to hear from you today. And so we submit ourselves to you. You are a good teacher. And would you teach, would you guide, and would you lead us into your truth today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when Shane told me we would be doing a series on Exodus, I got to tell you, I was pretty excited uh, because Moses is actually my favorite biblical character. And uh, the story of Moses is actually part of a much larger story in the Bible where God is actually making a people for himself, a nation whose purpose is to literally bring the blessing of God to the nations of the world. And this story, it actually has a very humble beginning with a man named Abraham, who God makes this incredible covenant promise with in Genesis chapter 12. And God repeats this promise through three generations. You hear it through the generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, you know, describing God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is probably a familiar phrase to some of us here today. And it's a familiar phrase, some of our worship music as well. But we actually get this straight from Scripture, where it's repeated multiple times to show that God keeps his promises through all generations. And a few weeks ago, Shane actually led us through Exodus chapter 3, where Moses finally meets the God who keeps his promises, this promise-keeping God of his ancestors through that burning bush episode. And we learned last Sunday that when God appeared in the fire, that was called a theophany, kind of a new word maybe for some of us. But that whole idea is that, you know, when God comes down and appears in a way that we can understand and experience. And so that is this theophany that God has with Moses through the burning bush. But how does God introduce himself? Well, God not only gives Moses the name I am, but God says four times in this first meeting that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is saying to Moses, the same promise that I've made with your ancestors, I am now making with you. They are still valid today. You know, Moses, a lot may have changed for your people who are slaves in Egypt. A lot may have changed for you. 
You used to tend the palace, and now you're tending sheep. Moses, a lot has changed for my people, but nothing has changed for me. I am still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now I am calling you to participate in my promise to save and send my people so that they can be a blessing to the nations of the world. And so it's within this larger story where we find Moses as he fits within God's unchanging purpose, plan, and promise. And, you know, I kind of, I love context. I'm sure you've picked up on that when I'm speaking, um, because I think it's important that we understand how things fit within Scripture. And if you grew up in the church like me, you know, likely you've heard various individual biblical stories. And each story does have something to teach us about who God is, who we are, and how we are to live our lives in this world. But it's important for us to know that the Bible is not simply a collection of disconnected stories, but in fact the Bible is one story of God who is on a mission to save his people from their sin. And we can actually see it as one story with kind of like these bookends that are essentially the same. You know, the Bible begins with God's presence in the Garden of Eden, and then the Bible ends with God's presence again in a renewed Eden. And everything in between all of the Old Testament is essentially moving that story along and pointing ahead to its ultimate fulfillment that we find in Jesus. And I love the book of Exodus because it really does highlight this story in Scripture in a powerful way. It's the story of God's mission to save God's people so that they can be his people once again. And so we're going to pick up the story in Exodus chapter 4. If you have your Bibles or your apps, please open those uh, to Exodus chapter 4. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. And it says, So Moses went back home to Jethro, his father-in-law. Please let me return to my relatives in Egypt, Moses said. I don't even know if they're still alive. Go in peace, Jethro replied. Before Moses left Midian, the Lord said to him, Return to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you have died. And so Moses took his wife and his sons, and he put them on a donkey, and he headed back to the land of Egypt. And in his hand, he carried the staff of God. And so this passage, it actually follows immediately after the burning bush episode, where God calls, equips, and sends Moses back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh to save his people. And now if you remember last week, you're going to remember that Moses' response to God's call on his life was not the most inspiring display of confidence in the commitment that he had. And, you know, if this was a job interview, he certainly would have bombed it because not once, not twice, but five times Moses challenges God's call on his life. And, you know, if the Bible's purpose is to highlight the heroes of faith, then Moses certainly sets a very low bar But the true hero of all the stories of the Bible is God himself. You see, God is the one who will rescue his people. But he chooses to work his perfect plan through imperfect people like Moses and like you and like me. All right, in verse 18, we read that Moses tells Jethro, his father-in-law, his plan to return to Egypt. And, you know, this is actually an appropriate thing for Moses to do. After all, Jethro provided him a home. Jethro provided him a job, and Jethro even gave him his daughter Zipporah in marriage. And so 
Moses asking for his blessing was actually quite an appropriate thing to do to honor his father-in-law. But there's a little bit of a problem here. If you look carefully at the text, Moses is actually quite selective about the details that he shares with his father-in-law. It's true that God did call him to go back to Egypt to kind of be with his people, but there's a whole lot more going on to the story than Moses is letting on. See, he mentions nothing of this rescue plan where he would confront Pharaoh, king of the most powerful nation at that time. He mentions nothing of the miraculous signs that God gave him to free his relatives, the Jews, from their slavery. You know, Moses has no intention of going back to Egypt to do a simple check-in. This is no social call. This is no family reunion. Moses is going to war against Pharaoh, against this nation who has opposed and oppressed his people for 400 years. And so why does Moses seem to leave out this important detail? It's not like he didn't understand what God was calling him to. In fact, he knew it so well that he wrestled with God because he understood what he was being asked. You know, it's difficult for us to know exactly the reason why Moses doesn't come clean, why he doesn't share the real reason why he's going back to Egypt. You know, this simply could have been an extension of his lack of confidence that we see before God at the burning bush. You know, maybe Moses was embarrassed. Maybe he was embarrassed about trying to explain this unbelievable encounter, and more than that, how he responded himself with fear. So whatever the reasons are, he decides to keep the details to himself. Well, whatever the reasons are, Jethro blesses him and sends him on his way with peace. And with Jethro's blessing, Moses packs up his family. He takes the staff that God gave him. But then God tells him something new. We're going to continue in verse 21. And the Lord told Moses, when you arrive back in Egypt, go to Pharaoh and perform all the miracles I've empowered you to do. But I will harden his heart so he will refuse to let the people go. Then you will tell him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. I commanded you to let my son go so he can worship me. But since you have refused, I will now kill your firstborn son. And so in verse 21, God instructs Moses for the first time to perform these first miraculous signs before Pharaoh. You see, up until this moment, these signs were initially given as kind of like evidence for Israel's disbelief, not as a weapon against Pharaoh. But as the story unfolds, Israel sees the signs and worships God, whereas Pharaoh sees the signs and rejects the God who performed them. You know, the rest of this section as we read it, it actually gives an entire overview to the rest of the Exodus story. See, God, Moses is going to demonstrate the hand of God against Pharaoh, but that same hand of God is going to prevent Pharaoh from responding. And this is kind of a difficult and challenging idea and thought for us to get our heads around, but the whole idea and the whole point is this. If Israel is going to be freed, it is God's doing under God's control because it is God's will. See, God's plan as we read it is actually motivated by love, by love for a people who he calls his firstborn son. And this is an interesting point that God is more interested. See, his purpose for freedom for his people is not freedom from oppression, but it's freedom for worship. It's beautiful. Freedom for worship. Israel to be able to worship and serve 
their heavenly father. You know, God is adopting Israel into sonship, and he wants them to know how he feels about them, but he also wants Pharaoh to know how he feels about them. Pharaoh is about to learn a lesson of the love of a protective father for his kids. See, because Pharaoh has messed with God's son Israel, God is coming after his. And you know, the fate of both Israel and Egypt both lie in the hands of God in this story. And that's the whole point of this narrative that we see unfolding through the plagues when Pharaoh finally releases Israel exactly when God said he would. And as much as God partners with people in his plans, the point is that the plans belong to God. We're going to continue reading in verse 24. It says this, On the way to Egypt, at a place where Moses and his family had stopped for the night, the Lord confronted him and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife, Zipporah, took a flint knife and circumcised her son. She touched his feet with the foreskin and said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. When she said a bridegroom of blood, she was referring to the circumcision. After that, the Lord left him. Now, if you've never heard of this passage before, this is likely one of the most confusing parts of Scripture uh, that we find in the Bible. And, uh, you know, I remember when I was uh, working— uh, this is actually probably not something you would hear in kids' ministry, luckily. So, uh, yeah, you know, we're selective there too. It's good. I remember working at Toyota one uh, summer as a summer student, and my group leader was reading the Bible, and he was asking me questions about it. And one day he came to me really confused, and he'd been reading the Old Testament where he came across a disturbing story that he'd just not heard before. You know, the truth is that the Bible is not this sanitized book. But actually, it gives us a glimpse into the ugliness of sin and how it affects relationships, how it affects relationships with us us and God, how it affects relationships with us and others, but also how it affects some of the challenges and struggles that we face within ourselves, doesn't it? And so we come to this section of the story which really generates a lot more questions than it does answers. I mean, some of the questions are, who is the him that the Lord wants to kill? And if it is Moses, why would God want to kill Moses right after he sends Moses to Egypt? And then how does Zipporah know the solution so quickly? I mean, there's a lot of questions that we could ask of this text, but this passage does provide answers that help us understand the holiness and the seriousness of God's covenant with his people. Now, the hymn that God wants to kill here seems to be Moses as the NIV Uh, translation indicates. This is actually the most commonly held view, and it actually makes the most sense because Moses is the one who this entire story up to this point has been focusing on. So God is angry at Moses because his son and possibly Moses himself are not circumcised. But why why is God so angry about this issue of circumcision? Well, to get an answer to that question, we kind of have to look back at the covenant requirements that God gave Abraham back in Genesis 17. You see, there we see that circumcision was the sign that God gave Abraham and all the generations to follow. And this sign was to set God's people apart as his holy and his chosen special people. And God guarded this important right and continued to point to this covenant sign every single time that God introduces himself as the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
See, this covenant that started with Abraham carried through the generations and now required faithful obedience from Moses, and not just Moses, but also the entire nation of Israel that God was about to save. See, God just finished telling Moses what was going to happen to Egypt when they disobeyed him, and now Moses is experiencing the exact same reality because he has disobeyed himself. And of course, we know the story. Zipporah quickly responds. She remedies the situation, and God's anger is appeased. This chapter ends with Moses arriving in Egypt, performing God's incredible, miraculous signs before God's people, and they bow down to worship God, who has come to their rescue. Now, no doubt, this is one unusual passage But I believe there's still this one overarching theme that teaches us about God's character and about our calling and how these two things intersect not only in Moses' life, but also in ours. You know, in Exodus 3, Moses meets the God who is holy, but then right after, God calls him to follow his plan for his life. And although Moses follows God's call, he becomes compromised because he fails to acknowledge what holiness requires. Holiness requires faithfulness. Now, although God establishes an unconditional covenant with Abraham, this covenant still requires faithfulness. And faithfulness is simply this. Faithfulness is taking our faith and putting it into action. And we can actually see God doing this with the test of Abraham when he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, in Genesis chapter 22. And in this story, Abraham doesn't stay home. He doesn't simply declare his commitment. He doesn't sing songs about his commitment. He doesn't turn his commitment into some kind of inner personal closeness with God. No. Abraham understands exactly what God is calling him to do, what is required of him. And I love this story. Details are important in the Bible. It says, Abraham got up early. I don't know if he was an early riser. But it says, Abraham got up early the next morning. He made preparations. He took his son. And then he went on the three-day hike to the place where God had called him to. And if you know this story, you know that God intervenes. God provides a substitute sacrifice after seeing Abraham's faithfulness to obey. You know, I think the challenge for you and for me is that our understanding of faith is very different from the Hebrew understanding of faith. You know, often we view faith as what we know, where the Hebrew understanding of faith is more to do with what you do. You know, for them, faith was understood as faithfulness. It was belief lived out through actions. And what's interesting as I was kind of studying this is that there's this connection here with the word faith in Hebrew, this word uh, emuna, which actually shares the same root for the word amen that we use in prayer. You know, amen essentially means may it be so. So actually, when you say the word amen at the end of your prayers, you are essentially showing your agreement to act upon the very prayer that you are praying. You know, understood this way, faith does not simply remain in our mind, but actually faith involves our entire body. It's an action. And so as we get back to Moses, we see that Moses knew the requirement of the covenant, but Moses didn't do the requirement of the covenant. In fact, Moses' failure to follow through in obedience was a violation against God's covenant, but also 
it was a violation against the holiness of God. See, God's holiness requires faithfulness. It moves our faith into action. A couple maybe new words for you this morning. It's kind of like the difference between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You know, orthodoxy has to do with right thinking. It's our beliefs. Where orthopraxy has to do with right living, our behaviors. And there's a time in our faith when the truth of God needs to move from simply a category of belief into a life of behavior that needs to happen. And, you know, failing to put our faith into action is kind of like living with a disease and you learn of a surgeon who can heal you. You've researched the surgeon. You've followed their track record. You know that they are the leading expert in this medical field. You've studied. You've gathered information. You could walk somebody through the surgery yourself. You know it so well inside and out. And believing that this surgeon is the only one who can heal you, you make an appointment to meet with them. You schedule a date for the surgery. But when the day actually comes and you stand in the operating room, you fail to get up on the surgeon's table because you are not willing to actually put your life in their hands. How often do we treat God this way? You know, we spend our whole lives sometimes reading about the character of God, learning about his holiness. Maybe we even understand the requirements for faithfulness, but all that knowledge means absolutely nothing if our faith does not result in faithful living. Anybody here with me? Yeah. You know, I'm sure that God, for some of us today, I know, has been calling you to deeper areas of trust in him. Maybe there's areas of your life right now where God is calling you to move beyond belief and actually into some new behaviors that reflect the holiness of God in your life. Like Moses, we can have the best intentions, you know, to follow God. But if we are not careful and we disregard God's truth, we may end up compromising the call that God has for our very lives. And I just want to pause for a minute and make a bit of a distinction between weakness and disobedience. There is a difference. You know, Moses in his life had many weaknesses when God called him. You know, God works through weaknesses. Anybody there with me? God works through weaknesses, right? In fact, God's strength, the Bible says, is made perfect through our weaknesses. And this was certainly true for the case of Moses. You know, Moses had self-doubt. Moses had excuses. Moses had a past. God didn't have any problem working through Moses' weaknesses, but God did have a problem with his disobedience. You see, church, God is not concerned about your competency as much as you maybe think he is. God is not concerned about your competency, what you can and cannot do. What God is concerned about is our character. God is concerned about our character. God wants us to strive to walk in obedience with him in all areas of our lives, every day of our lives. You know, Moses may have acknowledged the holiness of God at the burning bush. He may have taken off his sandals. He may have covered his face he may have acknowledged the holiness of God, but as he walked to Egypt, that is when he learned truly what holiness requires. That holiness requires faithfulness. I'm going to call the band up to help us conclude this morning. I would encourage you today to read over the whole chapter of Exodus chapter 4, because as you get to the end of this chapter, 
this chapter where Moses is telling the leaders of Israel God's plan to save God's people, to be his people once again. I want to read for you just the last few verses in verse 30 to 31, and it says this. It says, And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses, and he also performed signs before the people, and they believed. But catch this next part. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them, when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. God's heart to save his people is seen here. The people that he loved like a son. You know, when God's people see the signs, they believe. But when they hear of the love of God for them, when they hear that he was concerned for them, they bow down and worship. Church, would our faith move us into faithfulness, that we would respond in worship, not just with our beliefs, not just with our songs, but actually with our entire lives. Would our lives truly reflect the holiness of God? Amen? Let's worship together. Please stand.